Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's been quite a few days for lies and truth in America. Uh, Today, President Trump announced that he, as president, had done more for black Americans than any U.S. president since Abraham Lincoln. He also suggested that um, it was a great day for George Floyd. Uh, I don't know quite why, but if George was watching what was going on in America from heaven, he would be celebrating and happy. The real question to me is what kind of lies are Trump articulating? Are these unique lies? Are they special lies? Or are they just lies of politicians? Federico Finkelstein is the author of A Brief History of fascist lies. And my sense is that Federico believes that Trump's lies are fascist. Is that fair, Federico? Is there something particularly fascist about the untruths that Donald Trump is now articulating? Uh, Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, I see Trump as as being uh, getting uh, closer to fascism. Uh, He's not a fascist yet. Probably he would like to be. and I think it depends on, on the rest of us, people that believe in democracy, to basically to resist these attacks against democracy. Now, I will say this. this. This type of lying belongs to the history of fascism. And in that sense, the, the Trump is very close to fascism in the way fascists not only spread propaganda, but also believe uh, in their lies. They ultimately believe in the fact that they can speak from the dead. They ultimate, ultimately believe that uh, their form of politics is a, a, a kind of a, a religion in which there is a cult-like situation and the leader is like a god. And in that sense, the way Trump is lying, yes, it belongs to the history of fascist lying because it shares, I mean, his way of lying shares uh, certain patterns uh, which connect him to, pra- to fascism rather than to the lies or the typical lies of other politicians let's say, conservative or liberal politician. Federico, in your book, A Brief History of Fascist Lies, you acknowledge that most politicians tell lies. It's almost part of the the job description. Um, But there's something unique about fascist lies. What is it? Um, you, You suggested earlier that they believe these lies. But these lies themselves um, are what you call in your book uh, transcendence of reason. Is that fair? Yes, yes, because basically uh, when typical politicians are lying, A, they know uh, they know they are lying. B, they know that because what they are saying doesn't correspond to, uh, let's say, reality or to empirical observation. Whereas the situation is different for the fascists. For them, it is empirical observation that is wrong because the truth, as they see it, relates to uh, a kind of uh, faith in the world of the leader. 
So we see on one side, I mean, and actually in the book, as you know, I even talk about fascists that say, yes, there is an empirical truth, but our truth moves beyond or is above that uh, empirical truth because it belongs to the world of the universe of faith. And in that sense, yes, fascist lies are different because this basically what what people, that, uh, let's say like the rest of us, meaning people that are not fascist and believe in what they see, uh, will regard as truth for the fascist is a lie. And what we will regard as a lie because it doesn't correspond to the world of observation for them is uh, the truth. So, for example, when Trump is saying that he knows what uh, this victim of uh, of racism is thinking, you know, in heaven, uh, that is not not something that we can argue with. I mean, from the point of view of observation, because it believe it, it belongs to the world of the Trump religion or the Trump cult, so to speak. You suggest also that. Fascism as a movement uh, of early 20th century Europe uh, is one that is opposed to universal reason. What does that mean? Well, uh, they, the fascists uh, <laughs> will see reason as a kind of artificial thing. Because basically the idea that you can see and then make an interpretation for them was betraying, uh, let's say, what they believe was true, which is that what you feel, not what you see, is what is true. So if, uh, let's say, you feel that, uh, that the sky shouldn't be blue, I mean, of course, I'm exaggerating or basically illustrating this, then uh, so be it. Now, let me go back to an actual example. So fascists, I mean, Hitler and Goebbels, for example, would believe in a lie which said that Jews were uh, dirty and they spread disease. Of course, this is a lie. Now, most people, uh, let's say people that are not fascists, will just discount this, uh, uh, this idea as a lie because that, that, that did not correspond to the reality of, uh, of Jews, which were not, of course, dirty per se or spread disease, disease per se. Now, what the fascists did with that, they didn't like the, what they could observe, so they created artificial conditions, say, ghettos and concentration camps, in which they would put Jews there and uh, in those unsanitary conditions, in those terrible conditions, then Jews will become dirty, and yes, they will spread disease. So when they, they will turn lies into reality. So turning lies into reality explains how this way of lying can be really uh, lethal in changing reality in order to conform to the lie. Do you draw a direct link between the classic fascists of the early 20th century, Hitler, of course, Mussolini, Codriano in, in Romania and several other fascist leaders in Europe and Trump himself, are they all driven by what you call uh, a narcissistic drive, which in itself overcomes reason? Yes, well, I would say that. Although Trump is a kind of, I mean, there are important differences between, let's say, Trump and the, uh, and the classical fascists. Uh, many of these leaders were strong leaders, whereas Trump is really weak. And the perfect perfect metaphor of that is that uh, Trump in the bunker, right? I mean, Hitler was in the bunker when, when the Allies and the Soviet troops were uh, basically uh, reaching Berlin. Uh, and Trump, you know, is not that kind of leader. But the way they lie, they, they share this pattern that, uh, that whenever they feel something should be truth, then they present that as truth. So basically, this kind of magical or miracle cures that, for example, Trump has been insisting, 
uh, or are of course lies, but lies that, as in the case of the Nazis before him, lies that had a, a little effect because uh, to the extent that people are, let's say, not wearing masks, discounting the gravity of the disease, or even, you know, uh, drinking bleach or taking the wrong medicines, then people are dying because of these lies. So we should not take these uh, lies as a kind of um, a small thing. They are very important. And to the extent that Trump is not necessarily a fascist now, but but is really close to fascism and this should be bad enough, then we should be very worried about it. Marx, of course, famously wrote that history repeats itself, first as tragedy and then as farce. Is there something about Trump and, and other populist leaders like Bolsonaro which indicate a, 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 a farcical replay of tragic fascism? Uh, well, um, I mean, that is interesting because, you know, it's not that I agree necessarily with this, this idea by Marx, because in history we believe that there are important continuities, but also, you know, changes over time. So to the extent that we want to use this metaphor of the farce and the tragedy, I mean, when the, as you know, when the fascists emerged, you know, people were also making fun of Hitler without taking him seriously. The same with, with Mussolini. So, I mean, there were tragic but also farcical elements in early, in classic, classical fascism, in the same way as, you know, there are both elements in people like Trump and Bolsonaro. I mean, Mussolini, for example, in the March of Rome, they had to convince him not to ride to Rome in a horse because many of his advisors believed that that would have been pathetic, although he wanted. Last week, Bolsonaro was riding a horse in the midst of, you know, a terrible situation for Brazil where people are dying and he's a kind of a, a pandemic uh, COVID-19 denier. So my point is that there are tragical elements here as, in, in our current times as well. I, I wouldn't say that it's only farcical in that sense. Is there something particularly fascistic about Trump's photo uh, outside the church, uh, which of course is so controversial in the United States, leaving aside the way in which that photo was enabled. Him with the Bible and his retinue of bureaucrats and thugs and farcical family members that support him. Um, given your knowledge of the history of fascism, does that remind you of the kind of photo opportunities that fascist leaders used back in the 1930s? Certainly so. I, I think, the, you know, this is a key question and a question that, that, that I mean, that can be answered only in terms that should worry us, in ter I mean, in terms of what that means for, for democracy. Uh, because, I mean, when I was basically, uh, you know, thinking about that Im those images, I mean, I thought, okay, Hitler and Goebbels would have been proud, I mean, about Trump and what he's doing. This idea of... Federico, you're, you're, you're referring to Joseph Goebbels, of course, who was Hitler's chief of propaganda. Yes, like the propaganda master, let's say one of the most infamous uh, masters of propaganda in the history of the, of the world. And, um, and basically, I, I say, I, I, as an expert on this, I feel that they would have been proud because he was right out of the fascist uh, playbook. Uh, and I was saying this idea of that the leader can personify both religion and the nation, and this idea of the leader surrounded by, you know, by the armed forces, and, 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 you know, as you were referring to the nepotism as well. Uh, so, yes, we should be really worried. I mean, he has not reached a fascist stage, and I think that it depends on, on, on all of us that he doesn't reach that stage. 
by you know by defending democracy by having dialogues as the one that we are having right now by protesting if we if we feel we need to protest by also trying to convince uh, you know I think uh, people uh, both of on the right or, or the left to put differences aside and defend democracy because this is not a really a right or left position but rather who is on the side of the constitution and the same I think will should be the case for law enforcement and the armed forces and this is not really about the chain of command but rather defending the constitution because this idea that in order to have a let's say a photo op you can uh, pro you know you can just start repression as we have seen it I mean it's just fascist. I mean, again, that doesn't mean that we are living in a fascist situation, but the parallels and even the particularities are, uh, you know, uh, bad enough. There is an audience, though, Federico, for this kind of stuff, isn't there, though? Uh, there have been lots of reports after, ch- uh, after Trump's appearance outside the church, wagering the Bible, that for some evangelicals, actually for a, a large percentage of e- evangelicals, this was a, a, a deeply meaningful transcendental moment in which Trump himself was uh, realizing himself. Um, so, so this is beyond just lies. This has meaning to many people. Yes, I mean, uh, yes, but it, uh, as you know, those people are the minority. They were the minority in the elections and they might be the minority now. So I think, I mean, uh, the fascists were able to succeed because uh, of people like that. I mean, let me put this very, you know, in a in a in a kind of um, very uh, sharp way, because I mean, the, something like you know, the one of the most horrible crimes of fascism, which was the Holocaust, it not only happened because Hitler decided that, that was the that that you know that the Jews of Europe should be exterminated. Yes, it happened because of that. It also happened because uh, you know there were. Uh, Nazi uh, and other European executioners that participated of the crime. Yes, but also that could have happened because a lot of people were apathic. A lot of people didn't care about that. So there is no middle ground between uh, fascism and anti-fascism, between racism and anti-racism. There is no middle ground. So basically people that identify with what Trump is doing are people that even if they don't call, they don't think of themselves as racist, they are what in Nazi history are called uh, moderate racist. People that said, you know, it's not that I agree with what the Nazis are doing, but I don't care much about it. So my point is, this is not the time for, to be apathetic. This is not the, the time to, you know, to, uh, to occupy a middle ground. Either you are with democracy or you are against it. If people feel for that, that that was transcendental, it's because those people are into what philosophers like Theodore Adorno and others wrote almost 50 years ago about the authoritarian personality. People that are in need of such a father figure. People that are in need to be treated like children. People that are in need of authoritarian figures such as Trump. So my point is that those people are still in the minority. They always were. And, and, and actually, we need them to, uh, you know, to understand this situation as well. So how do we deal with all these lies, Federico? Of course, everyone should read your book, A, a Brief History of Fascist Lies. Um, but how, how should we deal with it, particularly in the media, which report on the world? Uh, as you know, there's a great debate now in Silicon Valley between Twitter and Facebook of how to to confront these lies. The Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook says that Facebook's just a platform and it's not for Facebook to comment. Uh, Jack Dorsey at Twitter 
disagrees and believes that Twitter has a responsibility to correct or at least add caveats to some of the lies that Trump is telling. What's your opinion on this? Well, I mean, it re I mean, this is a key question in relation to what we were talking about like uh, one minute ago, because, I mean, there is no middle ground here. Uh, Twitter comes late, but it arrives at this conclusion, uh, and, and rightly so. So there is no middle ground. Either we are with constitutional democracy or we or you are with those that attack it. There is no silence that you can have about this. So, I mean, the position of Facebook reminds me, actually, to let me be crude here, it reminds me of the position of those Germans that didn't care that the Jews were killed. I mean, there is no middle ground between racism and anti-racism. And if the president is engaged in, let's say, promoting racist violence, as he does, then if you don't say something, you are letting it go and perhaps you are siding with that. So uh, by not doing anything. So my point is that this is, I mean, it's a, it's a really uh, important debate. And I think certainly Twitter is on the right side of the issue uh, and Facebook is not. And would that extend to the New York Times? Do you believe that the New York Times, for example, was wrong to publish uh, an op-ed of one of the regime's apologists, uh, a prominent senator, about justifying martial law? Well, I think uh, the, the, the mistake was not to, I mean, to publish the lies by this person, because if that person is willing to explain, uh, uh, you know, his position without resorting to lies, then you can provide that opinion, in my view. But basically, uh, amplifying lies, I don't think it is, it is a good way of dealing with this issue. There are some conservatives, Frederico, uh, Federico, who will argue that, that this new atmosphere in which it's so easy to lie is, has not only been caused by the right, but also by the left, by postmodernism by the retreat, particularly of the academic left, from the idea of truth itself. Is there any truth to that, to excuse the pun? I don't know what they mean by, by postmodernism, uh, because sometimes, I mean, that was, a, I mean, to put it very uh, succinctly, that was an approach to literature which tended to analyze the text in themselves and so on and so forth. Like, I mean, the idea that that relates to uh, academia at large, certainly not to history where that never was, important as an influence, uh, I think it's mistaken. But, but the point here is really not to, uh, not to think about, uh, let's say, forms of, uh, let's say, relativization or relativity regarding the truth in previous years, but rather to focus on this particular type of line, which certainly doesn't relate much to, uh, you know, to those conservatives, perhaps, or, or even to that left that is criticized. They are criticizing because we are talking about a far-right populist, racist way of lying, which is very close to the fascist way. And thereby, we are talking about a different animal. here, And that animal is called Donald Trump. Uh, Federico, one of the reasons why I think your book's so interesting and, and why you're such a, an intriguing character is because you study the history of fascism, but you grew up in Argentina and you're very also familiar with the modern history of Latin America. How much has that helped you made sense both of historical fascism and what you call the uh, the the, the post-fascism of, of Trump and Bolsonaro? Yes, I think uh, well, I, I think I, I think it, it it helped me a lot. I mean, the first decade of my life, I live under a dictator dictatorship which was uh, rooted in fascist ideology and a dictatorship that kills 30,000 uh, citizens. Uh, and now let's think about this. Uh, I'm also, I should say, 
uh, Jewish. And, uh, and in Argentina, the Jewish population was and is under 1%. And yet that dictatorship killed, I mean, of those people that the dictatorship killed during the dirty war, uh, between 10 to 15% were Jewish. Uh, so big, you know, big dissonance between the actual numbers and, and you know, and the percentage of, of those killed, which show a lot about that fascist ideology as well as anti-Semitism and racism. As a young kid, I was perplexed by that. How it could be possible that in a country that was also, I would say, very cultivated and, and, and valued democratic things, such a dictatorship could have killed like that. Uh, so my interest in the history of fascism was quite related to these experiences, but also my interest in antisemitism and the Holocaust and so on. Now, what I found out is that after 1945, um, and basically... I published a book on the Dirty War, these topics that I was just talking about, which was published with Oxford University Press in, in 2014. After I finished that book, I decided to focus on what happened afterwards. And what happened afterwards that was that after the fascists were defeated in 1945, there were people like General Perón in Argentina and Getúlio Vargas in Brazil and other places that they were the first populist regimes. And what made them different to the fascists is that these people were former fascists and former dictators that decided to somehow enter the world of democracy. And that's how populism was born as a regime. So these dictators, as opposed to what the fascists did, I mean, the fascists, of course, destroyed democracy from within, right? They used the electoral system and the democratic system, as Hitler and Mussolini did, to destroy democracy from within. These guys were dictators that destroyed dictatorship from within in order to create a democracy. And those were the first populist democracies of 1945. Now, these were authoritarian democracies, and I say, uh, I said in my following book, which is called From Fascism to Populism in History, that, um, that these people uh, created, a demo, uh, let's say, fascism in a democratic key. And the result of that is that we are not talking about fascism, but we are talking about populism, meaning an authoritarian way of democracy, which left behind three key elements of fascism. These three key elements were the glorification and the glorification of violence, racism being at the center of politics, and dictatorship. And the question that we should ask is why populists like Donald Trump and Bolsonaro are somehow going back to the to some key elements of fascism that the other populists left behind. So we see, going back to your question about what is new and what is not, where this is a tragedy or a farce, is that we see a kind of weird situation in which uh, these populists, which were elected, are going back to authoritarian elements in fascism that actually were not present in the long history of populism, because populism left fascism behind, and people like Trump and Bolsonaro want to return to these elements of fascism. How Trump started his campaign by engaging in a kind of racist diatribe against Mexican and by extension Latin Americans or Hispanic, uh, Hispanic, Hispanic people, uh, and so on and so forth. So we see both change and um, change and, and and continuity. So the Latin American history of populism shows us again like these similarities, but also key distinctions in a way. Finally, uh, Federico. Uh, is there a Latin American writer who, who, who has a particular understanding, a sensibility of the dangers and absurdities of fascism and populism that you would recommend people read? 
Oh, yes, I will certainly recommend the, the work of my favorite author, the Argentine writer Jorge Luis Borges, who published this incredible story, which is called the Deutsches Requiem. And he published this in his book, The Aleph and Other Stories. And it's incredible because during the, he wrote this by the end of the war. People didn't know much about the Holocaust then, and yet he put himself in the skin of a concentration camp commander who was an intellectual. And Borges said, I wrote that story because I, didn't, I wasn't interested in a Hitler, which was a grotesque character, but rather in why an intellectual will engage in such kind of a denial of reason and engagement with propaganda and lies. So he wanted to understand this. And, and it's, a, it's an incredible story, which I, I recommend to all your listeners. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.